Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. It's not as well known as the main competition, but I have always loved Cannes Classics and its selection of restorations, revivals, and film documentaries. The genuine discoveries and clever programming are outstanding, but many people find it hard to fit them into the usual crazy Cannes schedule and coverage. So, this year I vowed to put together a special Cannes Classics episode. There are far too many worthy titles to cover them all, but I got together with Carlos Valladares again and talked about some highlights. These include The Moon Has Risen, from Japanese filmmaker and actress Kinuyo Tanaka, La Guerre est Finie, from Alain Renier, and the much-loved Powell and Pressburger film I Know Where I'm Going. I also talk about the wonderfully odd Friendship's Death starring Tilda Swinton in an early role and directed by film theorist Peter Wollen. And also Repentance, a brash Georgian satire from the 1980s about a dictatorial mayor who comes back from the dead, sort of. These are just a few of the movies in Cannes Classics this year, and you'll probably be hearing more from me on their selections down the road. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. The Cannes series of podcasts uh, we were doing have mainly focused on premieres, uh, world premieres of new films, but I really wanted to take some time and put a spotlight on another section of the festival, Cannes Classics. And Cannes Classics section is uh, retrospectives, revivals, and a wonderful subsection of uh, movies about movies and movies about movie making. And it's basically just as world-class as the selection of new movies that gets the most attention. So in, in my small way here, I, I want to try to, uh, you know, give, give some credit to these movies and, you know, also implicitly to the, the programmers there of Cannes Classics. So uh, for this project, I'm very happy to be rejoined um, by a previous guest in the Cannes series, uh, and that's Carlos Valladares. Um, welcome back, Carlos, and thank you for carving out some time to talk about um, movies. You're safe and sound back in the States now, right? Yes, safe and sound and secure. So we're, we're making a go at it. <laughs> Good. And, and sleeping more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm finally back to my eight-hour schedule, so that's, that's always wonderful. I think I will let, uh, maybe let you start off because you, you, you fit in three films the first film is actually, I mean, I'm really glad you, you were able to talk about it because I think it's probably one of the, as far as the restorations go, it's probably one of the banner restorations because I think it, it heralds a, a retrospective. That film is The Moon Has Risen. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, The Moon Has Risen was is such a interesting, special film for many reasons. Um, it was directed by Kanuyo Tanaka, who m- many of you will probably recognize as like one of the greatest of the Japanese actresses of the classical Japanese studio system. Um, she worked a lot with Kenji Mitsuguchi um, and was in Ugetsu. She was the mother in Sancho the Bailiff. She was Oharu in The Life of Oharu. Um, and this film is has an interesting history because it was originally developed by Yasujiro Ozu, like, and he he wrote the screenplay and everything, but then he had to bow out at the last minute and as a result, he gave over uh, directing reins to Kanuyo Tanaka. Um, and so it's just an interesting kind of um, merger of sensibilities and like um, what would be kind of what you, what you can detect from afar as a kind of typical Ozu, like will they, won't they marriage plot becomes not just in like the, the presentation of the characters, but also the framing and the composition becomes something that's, it, it wouldn't be recognizably his you know, so it kind of challenges auteurism in so many interesting ways. The basic thing about The Moon Has Risen is that it's um, it's one of those kind of, you know, uh, matchmaking films that Ozu is really well known for. The only difference is that it's instead of the the patriarch, like who is would usually be played by Tishu Ryu and who's in this film, albeit in a very small, small role compared to the rest of the, the ensemble, um, instead of the patriarch, it's actually the baby sister of the family who's uh, who's calling the shots here. Meanwhile, like uh, Chisha Ryu is just basically confined to the background, grunting and praying and reading the newspaper for about a hundred minutes. And it was it was just a lovely, beautiful film, and it just makes me want to see more of 
what Tanaka did um, during her time directing. Because um, judging from the basis of this one film, I can just tell she's just so damn good at choreographing bustling movements um, in the background of shots. Like she's very good at like dynamic, um, keeping the foreground, midground, and background occupied with like very simple but effective business. Like whether you're on like a hillside during a picnic or whether you're inside the family's praying circle where they keep going back to like throughout the film. And there's a lot of great moonlight shots in the film that are just absolutely to die for. They're gorgeous. Like they give it the the title, The Moon Has Risen, um, of course. Um, and one of the the baby sister's older sister, she's trying to, um, the baby sister's trying to like hook her up with this like one guy who's like coming in from town, like a, um, and the guy's best friend is always like citing James Joyce and Malpassant and um, like uh, W. Somerset Maugan to explain the inevitability of these two people getting together. And he says at one point, if the moonlight shines right, hands will be held, which is such a beautiful way of like, you know, hands will be held. It's just like nice from like the level of like screenwriting and like tense and whatnot. There's a lot of people left at the beginning, I suspect, because um, Tanaka just throws you into the family dynamics where the the filmmakers don't really feel the need to explain who's who to whom yet. And you're just kind of thrown headlong into this family that has like a lot of like, there's not much neuroses in these films as there really, really isn't in much of Ozu's uh, directed work. But like, you know, it's it's just kind of, we're, we're in their quotidian traditions so it probably felt for a lot of people like just like slow and info dumpy because it it did have that feel um but after about 30 minutes i just like a lot of us just like got into the rhythm and we were just like floating and laughing along with it yeah i mean just what you mentioned for example the the attention to kind of quotidian detail and routine um that maybe might not find place in usual domestic drama did you feel like there was more of that was that maybe sort of a, a gesture or is it just i don't know was it just the demands of the story as she was interpreting it i think it just has more to do with that she's just interested in the people as people instead of like the plot just kind of going where it is like there's baked into the screenplay these lines about the inevitability of the meetup it's almost like She's kind of treating the Ozu screenplay as like, okay, it's just another one of these like stories. We know that they're going to get together in the end. So like, can we do something that's just um, beyond that? And I think she really excels in, um, in, in that kind of realm in the direction of like her actors, like working with them. Like I, I should also mention, like she's also in the film itself as like the maid of the family whom like Tanaka is like conspiring with, um, the baby sister to get them together. And at one point the plot like fails and like she starts to like chew out Tanaka's character, the maid for like, you know, failing it. And Tanaka's just like, yes, it's my fault. Don't worry. Like I'll, I'll take the blame. Sure. Um, but she does it in a kind of like, oh God, like you're just so stuck up and like a like a very classic kind of like fifties Tokyo city girl who's like, you know, the the kind of characters that you see, like, at the ends of at later Ozu films, like An Autumn Afternoon or Good Morning, like the kind of younger generation. But it's not like the jadedness of that yet. Like, it's still 1955 and there's still kind of there's there's this pluck and tenacity. And in the 20 in the early 20 something character that is not present in like some of the later youth characters, I would say, in like Ozu's films, even though like he's a very, you know, patient and like you know everybody has their reasons dot 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 kind of director like he's there's there's something much more immediately identifiable and sympathetic with the lead sister here hmm. i like that's really interesting i like that distinction and and yeah this particular time i mean with the war i'm still being pretty fresh it's like an interesting transition point yeah me kitahara that's the that's the name of the the baby sister Setsuko was like, you know, I don't know what, I don't know whether that was intentional that he named her Setsuko after his, obviously his most famous actress, Setsuko Hara. But um, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be like, there's not some kind of nod to, you know, Setsuko Hara's traditional role in Ozu's directed films where she's the, she's the daughter either being married off or she's the, the widowed wife who's in grieving and doesn't want to, 
um, want to be married off again, but father is like really pushing for her to marry off. So I don't know. She, I mean, it's very different from like that, that kind of Satsukahara role, like um, Kitahara just kind of invests it in this, with this like joviality and this kind of punk spirit too, that I really was, it was very unlike, it's both like, you can see it within the map of like, you know, classical Japanese cinema and especially Ozu's films, but also very, very much not like breaking from this tradition. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's The Moon Has Risen, uh, 1955. And I mean, I have to hope and, and have to assume or at least hope that it'll be wending its way, um, you know, to. Yeah, I hope someone programs it here in New York and beyond just like, you know, it's it, it, it just was obvious that like, you know, this is a this is a retrospective that needs to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah. And that was kind of like also the theme of a lot of um, the canned classics that I managed to see, just like hoping that like in the next couple of months or the year or so, like we can start seeing these restored, like, cause I'm, I'm very impatient to, to watch more of Tanaka's work and appreciate her as a director and how, like the directing style and like her acting style kind of merge into one. And then also like waiting for uh, the war is over to, uh, to hit mm. um, as a, as a committed uh, Rene freak, you know, this was, and I'd never, I'd never seen La Guerre Fini. It was just pure heaven. Oh yeah. Tell me about the uh, La Guerre Fini. Uh, that's, um, I mean, weirdly it's sort of a movie that, doesn't always get mentioned first with with Renee. Mm. It's, an, it's an odd duck for sure. It's um, I mean, I adored it and it's very it's like you see it and you're like, OK, this is like the key link between something as kind of radically fractured as Muriel or the time of return and something as just achingly romantic and just kind of mired and melancholy as Jitem Jitem which is a much stabler, perhaps, let's say, film um, than something like Muriel or The Last Year at Marion Bad. Um, it's also an explicitly leftist film. It's like an explicitly political film. More, I mean, all of his films obviously are, but this one in particular, where you have the kind of the jaded, like, Spanish revolutionary Marxist who's kind of trying to pick up the pieces, not just of, like, what it meant for him and his Spanish communist allies to kind of quote unquote fail in the forties, but also like the failure of his relationship, which is just a classic Renee thing to do, just kind of link love and politics like that. One of the most beautiful moments of the movie that I noticed was that the same theme that plays when he's like at the funeral of one of his best buddies of Yves Montan's best buddies is also the exact same music that plays during what, like I have to say is like one of the most beautiful dazzlingly erotic and moving scenes i've ever seen and like just it goes even far beyond like what people say about like edward weston's like nude photographs or whatever the fuck it's just it's just so it's the the, the play between black and white and like high contrast low contrast um the like scenes of like just like lovers hands and skins caressing and touching it was just completely um beautiful and it's a it's an odd film, and it's just. Um, have, have you seen it? I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember sensations like what you're describing, which actually, you know, the way you're talking about it, kind of put me in mind of some of what Varda was doing—a similar kind mm. of attention, you know, I guess just to sort of flesh and be, being a human in the world. But Renier mm-hmm. gets always so tagged as like this kind of movie version of the new novel, kind of intellectualized figure. But I mean, Hiroshima Mon Amour, I mean that whole movie is it partly about like corporeality from, you know, the standpoint of being like living and also like dead flesh, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, all the, all the sand on flesh and in a uh, sand on skin in Hiroshima Moore is what always comes to mind for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But in, yeah. and that's the other thing too, I think also that he has that kind of reputation as being the new, like a very high, like minded intellectual filmmaker, which, like it's, I didn't, it wasn't shown as part of Cam, but it might as well could have been. I saw his film, um, I Want to Go Home, like like a few days before I went over on the plane there. And it's just, um, it's this film he did in the early 90s about this extremely jaded, like very ugly American 
like comic book artists played by Adolph Green, who did um, the books for like Singing in the Rain and Bells Are Ringing and a bunch of other like great, like freed MGM musicals from the 50s. And he's like unknown in America, but feted in France, which is, you know, the, the typical kind of situation. And like he like it's it's like a very lowbrow kind of movie where it's like uh, just kind of celebrating cartoons and comics in like an interesting way. And it was just like going from that Rene to this Rene, which is just so more obviously kind of intellectualized and things like that. It was interesting. Like it's of course, they're like completely joined together. Like there's the resonances with the kind of like dark humor that he has and also like the love of like just it's it's this very like Sontagian like mid 60s kind of sensibility where it's like I, I don't distinguish a difference in, in experiencing the Supremes as I would like I don't know a, a painting by Robert Rauschenberg I think it was her famous line from that final essay in Against Interpretation and it's kind of I've loved Renee so much because he's like an embodiment of that in so many different, and like from his first films where he's like tackling dubbing artists like Van Gogh and, and Picasso's Guernica um, to like Night and Fog and like the sixties films. And then his like very like muted, mute, like cool, like musical period in like the nineties and whatnot. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it was a, it was a great film and it had, it has one of the, it's it has the smartest like final shot in like cinema it's not like a final shot at all it's not a single shot it's just like double exposure and it's like love it's like the struggle it's like private history and public memory getting mixed up together um in the most sensual way and then also the fact that like the main character is named carlos is just kind of very appealing to me like um yves montan's one of his aliases is Carlos, um, but he doesn't really have like a name because he's always like on the run and the fascists are after him. And also um, like extreme Leninist Marxists are kind of like dismissing him at the same time as a kind of like old fogey of the past. And he's just kind of, you know, shifting, unplaceable. He's too young for the young and or he's too young for the old and too old for the young. But he's never he doesn't go through life as like a defeatist or just kind of like a useless cynic. He's like just always awake. Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a great um, a great line. Yves Montan says they're too close to see things clearly, and they think everything is in collapse. In Spain, I see clearly. Here, I'm blinded by reality, and I just I I love that. Just the kind of mm. how seeing reality as it actually is is kind of like a kind of can be a sham sometimes. And I just love that Renee's form like matches that, like his bizarre cuts. He has this thing, his, this thing sometimes in this movie where he like jumps forward into time to a, to an incident that never takes place or like that could happen. And like, I think I read somewhere it's like, that was like his version of trying to do like the future conditional in film. And I'm watching this and I'm like, why are people thinking on this level (laughs) of like form and like, you know, how to like, you know, play around with movies, like in this kind of rig, it's, it doesn't, it's, it's like both, it's obviously taken from like grammar and, and like literature, but it's done in a kind of non-obvious way where it's like, people can like follow along with this. Like, you know, I, like you can tell, like it gets to the point where it's like, is this what's really happening or is this what he wants to happen? Or is this is you know it's it's a perfect corollary for someone who's like struggling with um, with where to go and is like a committed Marxist, a committed um, political being, but like wants to find out where like what are the possibilities available to him in the period where this film is set, which is 1965. Mm, yeah, I, I always feel like anytime I go go back to a Rene movie, I'm just I'm surprised in you by the experimentation going on and the possibilities mm. just kind of almost he's almost like systematically going through the possibilities of, of in editing and montage and in, right. in phrasing and rephrasing and restructuring and actually for some reason i just i just remembered something i think it was from a varda interview where i think with her first film she actually got um there's some neat little story about it he, she got renee's uh help in like putting it together or editing mm, yeah uh, yeah i just also wish it, it like it got it gets like 
as much attention as some of the other main movies. Because, like, I mean, you know, I watched a lot of movies, like, at Cannes, and, like, by far, like, the three movies that I saw just, like, at the Cannes classics were just, like, <laughs> I would rather, I would go to those, like, over and over, mm-hmm. and over you know, like, I'd, yeah. um, beyond just the kind of mediocrity that they were kind of fobbing off as, like, you know, the prestige premiere of some Julia Binoche poverty porn movie, which is just god-awful. I'm like, my God. <laughs> the, stul- the stultifying state of the French art house cinema. But anyway. <laughs> well, I guess the, the one the one thing that always will be a sin is is when you when you do um, experiment with temporality in, in editing and, and mm-hmm. get away from any kind of narrative. That just remains something that... The fact is, if you actually take it just one step further as, as he does. It, yeah. People tend, tend to get lost. Yeah. It's, it's just the thing where it's like, I feel like they need just like up and coming critics or filmmakers just need to be watching like the war is over or <laughs> like Petulia by Richard Lester or like puzzle of a downfall child and all these movies mm-hmm. that are like trying to like, not even consciously or like kind of intellectually, but they're thinking, trying to think through a new kind of language or new kind of way of telling a story that's not just merely telling the story, but also revealing something about the civilization or non-civilization in mm. which this story emerges, um, which is just as important, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, poetic doom. It's always, it's always fun. It's always fun <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's it's a bit of a, a detour mm. uh, with the next film. Then I know where I'm going. I don't know. I just love how this movie really seems to unlock uh, a lot of, a lot of hearts in the world. Um, but um, mm-hmm. what did you think of it? Oh, and also if you, if you could talk about the the circumstances of, of the screening. Oh yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was fun because uh, Tilda Swinton was there randomly and she just, like, it's her, it's her favorite film of all time. And she just uh, gave like an impromptu introduction where she was like the, the island where Wendy Hiller is going to is the exact same island of my family, my Scottish clan ancestry. Where it's like, okay, what the hell, what the hell is going on here? Um, <laughs> but uh, no, that was um, that was great, um, and just the the sheer delight of her and everybody watching this, or a lot of people in the room. It was like their first time watching it. But uh, yeah, no, I know where I'm going. Like, I for years I only knew about it as a title. Like, I had no idea that it was about this like like aspiring to be posh woman who like goes to the Scottish Highlands to get married and meets this like assortment of like local eccentrics and dashing Robert Roger Liversey, of course, as as one does. Well, first of all, I, I just it's weird and weird, but like I prefer the French title to it. Je sais où je vais, which is just it's so like sing songy and lyrical, which is so much more like um, I know where I'm going, which it's it's a good title with the exclamation point, but je sais où je vais is so much more like, you know, it, it keeps with the kind of fairy tale like rhyming dimension of the film, and it's just like I don't know, I love we need more mysticism, just like unbridled pure mysticism in movies that isn't like tied by reality. I think our our obsession with reality like post Cassavetes has just been, has taken people down like such a, or like art down such a boring turn. And like a lot of pseudo Cassavetes people who are trying to do that kind of thing, uh, just fail miserably. Whereas something that is just illogical from the very minute, like that we get onto the French, or the French, um, the Scottish Highlands, it's, it, it doesn't conceal the, the kind of magic that like tinges its world. And I just, you know, it was it was just a sheer delight at the end. Like the the ending, which I didn't think was going to get to me, like really got to me. And I just started crying because it was just so like the the final revelation of like what like it actual like I, I won't say anymore because like people just have to discover this for their own if they've never seen it before. And if you've seen the film, you know what the hell I'm talking about. Just like that, that that whole revelation, that whole text just like had me just like giggling and sobbing. So it was just um, it was just a, a beautiful film. Um, I, I was like wondering to myself, like, did um, did William Detterly see this when he was like making Portrait of Jenny? Because like, there's a whirlpool in the film that was like very reminiscent of like the climax of Portrait of Jenny, another great film of mysticism and longing and Ooh. regret and all this, um, which came out in '48, so about three years after um, Je sais où je vais, and um, 
I was also thinking whether Bill Forsyth saw this for like local hero because it has like the sim a similar kind of vibe where you're like going into Scotland, which is just somehow it's not like the kind of like kilt and haggis and Rumpelstiltskin Scotland that you like learn from in like boring like childhood stories, but like it's this like weirder other world that is still yet part of our world and like they speak our same language, but it's just kind of this other worldly realm. Like I wonder whether he Hmm. saw that when he was like um you know plopping peter reichardt and burt lancaster into the into the norths of the aurora borealis and the scotland <laughs> highlands too so i don't know yeah yeah i ha- i have to think i have to think he did i mean it i it, it you know it also just seems like powell and pressburger movies just generally are um yeah they really stick in filmmakers memories especially you know mm-hmm. they, they are so i think probably what you're talking about they just so are unapologetically just bold in, in just the, I don't know, the compositions and the passions in them. And I don't know, talk about all this is just maybe you want to go see um, Black Narcissus again, which I think is a criterion. Um, actually, I think um, I Know Where I'm Going, I think is a, a criterion disc, so people can um, can uh, catch up with it if you, if you haven't already. It is, it. yeah, it is, but it's, and it's not, it's one of those like old school, like, early gen like criterion dvds where it's like oh. it has like that the the non-c logo with like the strip that just has like the, the small criterion collection so it's it's <laughs> i.e it's not like right. newly restored though i'm expecting that because of this restoration that martin scorsese like also like funded and spearheaded and he gave a small video introduction um at the screening at Cannes. um oh. I, I, I imagine that he's gonna that they're going to release this like again, like, cause it's just, it's just like, you know, I mean, what do you say about that movie? It's just kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's so special and weird and wonderful and everything I want with, from like um, 90 minutes of magic and darkness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, I know where I'm going. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I actually forgotten that it was that early. 45, yeah. And then, for, yeah, 46 the next year that he did, um, what's it called? Um, Matter of Life and Death. Right. I think, no, and the Colonel Blimp was the previous year. So it's like, Jeez. these were, they just came out just like one by one by one. These, yeah. Just crazy. They're just crazy. Just crazy. Can you imagine doing Colonel Blimp and then, oh no, and then Canterbury Tale, I think was um, 44. Um, yeah, it is, yeah, 44. So like, just Colonel Blimp, Canterbury Tale, I Know Where I'm Going, A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, and then, like, why not? The Red Shoes. Let's just land, let's just, <laughs> let's just round, let's just round out the 40s with, like, you know, yeah. the, the ultimate in, in dance and color. Jeez. That, you know, when people, you know, those, those perennial, like, can you name the best, you know, five film run? I mean, that's oh, yeah. pretty hard to beat. It's obviously it. Powell and Pressburger, if it's not, like, um, not a question. Not. Preston Sturges, you know, his like manic, like uh, yeah. 39 to 44 spate. It's definitely like Powell and Pressburger. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also saw a couple of movies in Cannes classics and I have a, a little segue um, just because, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the screening of I Know Where I'm Going, uh, Tilda Swinton gave an impromptu introduction. And one of the films that I, I wanted to talk about uh, stars Tilda Swinton. And I think... I think it's maybe just her second feature uh, role. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Friendship's Death. Friendship's Death, uh, directed by Peter Wolin. Uh, you know, uh, anyone who set foot in a intro, you know, a cinema course of any, any kind or theory course has probably read uh, part of or all of Signs and Meanings or, you know, I'm sure many listeners are, are familiar with, with his work. And of course, he had you know films that he directed and, and co-directed, uh, obviously in the seventies. So, but this, I think, I, I mean, I have to say, this was more enjoyable than most other things I'd seen that he had directed or co-directed, even though it's basically just a long dialogue in, I think, a couple of rooms. I'm going to start off just just with that appeal because, on that, because on another level, it's also like almost hilariously of of a certain moment. The, the plot, you know, such as it is, is that there's a war reporter uh, who is in Jordan in 1970. 
the middle of wartime and, uh, you know, he's tracking the Palestinian uh, soldiers. And I mean, but that background is not as important, although it does start off with archival footage of hijacked planes being uh, detonated and exploded on a runway. And so that's just the kind of opening frame, uh, which I think maybe in some ways feels as shocking or differently shocking now to, to start a movie like that. Like you don't even realize at first what you're looking at. Bill Patterson plays Sullivan and Sullivan's the war reporter, you know, and just kind of cynical, kind of fast talking, always, you know, suspicious of the angle someone has in a conversation. And he strikes up a friendship with friendship. Uh, and that's the name of the character that Silva Swinton plays, who is an alien. Uh, so, you know, anyone who just sort of rhetorically, for rhetorical flourish, has called Tilda Swinton an alien, um, you, you're not thinking of anything new. It, you know, in this movie, she actually plays basically AI. I mean, she's playing a kind of program in kind of android form who has been sent to the Earth to observe. Um, but she's landed here. She, she wasn't supposed to land there. She was supposed to land somewhere else. So instead of doing whatever observation she was going to do, she finds herself in a war zone with this, you know, kind of cynical, but very funny uh, war journalist. And they basically have a dialogue that kind of is a philosophical dialogue about what it means to be human, the fate of humanity, and uh, other related issues. I noticed, you know, Jonathan Rosenbaum had written a, a little squib about it, and he was skeptical of it and said it wasn't, wasn't that interesting, which is a little disappointing. But I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's, it's got a very witty, uh, script Their their interplay between the two is just, is just really lively. Um, I mean, sometimes it's, it is like they're doing a bit of a conceptual debate, but they're constantly switching up the framing, you know, and Wallen is like, obviously very aware of the fact that Tilda Swinton basically is cinema. I mean, he knew it before Cannes was around this year to, <laughs> to prove that he knew that then. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, him and Jarman. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure she, based upon what I've read about her, how she can actively participate in like the framing of shots. I would guess maybe that she was doing it here as well. Um, but yeah, there are these wonderful close ups, use of deep focus. Um, also, as like this extraterrestrial, she's constantly just switching up outfits that are just drawn from like traditional dress from different regions of the world. So you'll see her in, I mean, I wish I even knew the words for some of these you know, traditional fabrics and, and dresses. So that's kind of great from scene to scene. They make the most of what is a pretty short movie. I mean, you know, because it's just sort of a series of like dialogues while there's like shelling and bullets flying outside and they're just trying to figure out what to do next, basically. So it's one of those kind of, you know, trapped in a room at the end of the world kind of <laughs> uh, movies uh, with two people that I was very happy to be in the company with, especially since one of them is, you know, is in the kind of what is basically a template for art cinema, which is you take, you take a character with a kind of blank slate and just throw the world at them and then see what you think. <laughs> that applies inevitably to, you know, about 25% of like experimental can uh, dramas <laughs> that you see. But in, you know, in this case, it's, it's just great. The color the restoration is really lovely. Um, so yeah, I mean, if this is your thing. Also, I have to say, all the like futuristic stuff that she talks about is not like sort of, you know, <laughs> Peter Wallen's not like pulling it out of his ass. Like he was very savvy about what was around the corner. Um, and it's, it was sort of already, this is already 1987, but she basically describes like the workings of a digital camera at this point. And, you know, if you read some of what Wallen wrote at the time, he was just very matter of fact about, the rise of uh, digital filmmaking and how that would take over and uh, all, all things like that. Um, so it was, it's also remarkable in that. So there's also some interesting like computer graphics. Um, and I guess, I don't know if they were using maybe like some Amiga or some <laughs> computer that from that era. Um, but all in all, just kind of like something that sounds like it might be like a, a curio, I actually really liked. Um, and um, Tilda Swinton, she also, you know, just as a it's very early, I guess this is her, she had just made a film, her first film with Derek Jarman. So this is part of that run and, you know, still yet to come, of course, is um, Orlando. Oh, one last thing. She has an American accent. She puts on an American accent for this, oh. which is, yeah, which is also pretty entertaining. And not because it's like bad. I just, I just, 
it was fun just to see that performance. And she sort of, I read somewhere that like, oh, she has an American accent because she's trying out like different idioms. And I thought, I don't know. I think she just put on an American accent. Well, just to hear how that, how that works out. I, I still adamant that the, the, the supreme exemplar of like a British person doing an incredible American accent is um, uh, Vanessa Redgrave as Isadora Duncan. And an otherwise very flat and terrible like rendition of like the life of Isadora Duncan from like huh. 1968 called like the lives of Isadora or something like that. But she's just, it's just flawless. It's like, my God, like it's, and you know what her voice sounds yeah. like. She just, she nails it. She every, like you're, you're waiting for her to kind of, you know, like fail quote unquote, but like she, she never does. So, I mean, yeah. Actually how she snacks up to the red grave. Model. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She. I mean, there's just there's just so much of you know Tola Swinton's like life. I don't know, just raw to beaver in this as, as well. And you know, when you watch, or at least when, you know when, when I watch, you know what she's in in the '80s and '90s, I kind of end up wondering how it took so long for her to be back at the top of like the art cinema pyramid in a way, you know. Um, which I'm very glad to see now. Mm. You know, being able to headline a, a movie by a peach upon beer and i'd like to think you know help it kind of get mm-hmm. made maybe also the fact you said something before about that it seemed like it was much she was much more than just like an actor who appears in the film and i, I wish there was this was something that i mean post godard and all these lego tourists like just changing the the perception of like a, a film by blank like I mean, the Memoria is not a film by Epi Chapong. It's a film by Epi Chapong and Tilda Swinton and all the other, the, the, the sound people too. Like it's like, I mean, it's, that's logically, it's everybody's film, but just kind of, you know, the, the knee jerk feeling that critics and audiences feel to like, have to like, you know, identify a single maker of a film. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, I think, just detrimental, just how to per- even perceive cinema. And it's, it's it's just worth repeating over and over again. Like human, the human voice is like more than just an Almodovar film. Um, it's like an Almodovar film and like Tilda Swinton's film and like you know mm-hmm. what she, she has like a particular style now that like you know basically I'm just wishing that there's more kind of attention like to what the actor actively brings to the role, which is not just a kind of mere passively taking on the role, you know, it's like you you work with the script and you embody the people and it becomes something that goes even beyond the director. Like this was just like another theme of Ken. I think that was hammered into my head over and over again, whether it was Memoria or whether it was talking with Hamaguchi about the fact that like when he accepted the screenplay award, he was like, I don't think the film deserved screenplay and that you should have given it also to co-shared amongst the actors. And even though it's one of the most perfectly tuned screenplays in like years you know it's just this kind of i don't know breaking that a film by x model i think is just crucial yeah that's interesting i didn't i hadn't heard that about his uh hamaguchi acceptance says so much about him too that that he you know he he recognizes that um, every time that he would talk about this film film he would like or really any of his films like he he just Mm. he he brings it back to the actors you know Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a this is not a new move. Like people have been doing it. Like Rivette did it all the time, and so on and so on. But um, it's just I don't know. It's it's worth repeating. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and, and and you know, especially you know, I guess especially it has to be said at Cannes, which you know is very openly auteur uh, centric, and and that's just the way it approaches things. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in this case, you could say something like, "Yeah, a film, a film by Peter Wallen and and uh, Tilda Swinton." Um, and yeah, I, I you know I'll also say um, Bill Bill Patterson, who's also really good. Is I don't know, I, 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 he's just a really good like quintessential British ink stained <laughs> journalist, fast talking. In a decade where there were like more than one, where there was more than one uh, war journalist on screen, you had I guess you had like. Nolte did one, and then James Woods did this real slime ball in Salvador. Um, so this is totally different, but it's a, it's a kind of a funnier, wittier um, take on, on the war zone. So yeah, that's uh, Friendship's Death, uh, which I imagine that someone is putting together a Tilda Swinton retrospective somewhere, because I think it would be folly not to at, the, at this stage. But I, there was one more movie that I saw, um, also from another era, and one of the interesting things about the retrospective and the revival selection for me 
was, you know, seeing the, the center of gravity shift, how it's shifted over the past 10 years. So, I mean, obviously <laughs> the eighties are, you know, as far away as the seventies were 10 years ago, but they've kind of persisted in many minds, I think. And I have to admit myself as something, I mean, you might not get so much by tilling the soil there. Um, but I mean, you know, the fact is there's, there's lots to discover and repentance is a Georgian film that was in the selection. The director is Tengiz Abeladze, and it's a film that's set in a mayor. It's it's set in a small town, and the mayor. It's basically he he represents like dictatorship. Basically, um, he's this kind of strong man in a very small setting. You know, um, its start is that this guy has been buried, but he his corpse appears. Someone seems to have dug it up and, and, and placed it outside the house, the mansion of his son. Uh, so everyone's up in arms about this. And that it just seems to keep happening. You know, although he is dead, he still rises from the dead. Um, and then that's cut with, you know, the movie cuts between that, like, present time frame, apparent present time frame, to the past when he is ruling the town in his prime. So, and the same actor plays the dictatorial mayor and his son, which is a nice touch. And, you know, true to how many dictatorships were. So it's it's this interesting kind of like, yeah, anatomy of a despot. Um, I mean, there are elements of, of other rulers, and he is, I guess, pretty explicitly based on Beria, who was, you know, the Soviet head of secret police, uh, who is actually also appeared re- relatively recently in the death of Stalin and was just notoriously brutal and horrific and perverse. Uh, I mean, in this case, this guy is more buffoonish than not, but they also get across how the buffoonishness, you know, is just, you know, almost like a portrayal of a gangster is also the other side of the coin is just kind of sadism and uh, power hungriness, power, power hunger. So you have that figure and then you have in, in the kind of present time frame a, a woman who is resisting, you know, resisting his legacy. And it's it's a movie that's. Uh, has touches of surrealism, um, and, but also just the outlandishness of, of absolute power and how that manifests itself. And, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting selection because it's this kind of in, intact, you know, relic of the sort of movie you might have to make <laughs> in the 80s uh, when you wanted to say something uh, about non-democratic ruler. But it's more, I guess it's in many ways more open than most. So, yeah, I mean, it's repentance... It's, I, I, you know, I haven't really seen it screened much uh, in, in the U.S. at least. So I, I'm curious to see how people receive this. And I'm also curious how people would receive it when they've not seen, like, you know, at least when I was growing up, a staple of, of the art house was a lot of things were marketed the same way as being missives from the other side of the Iron Curtain and different, you know, allegories and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I I really appreciated the the kind of verve of, of the, the actors in this and this kind of strange combination of like basically small town setting, but also a, a dictatorship, writ, you know, a dictatorship writ small. So it, it felt lived in. I'm obviously it's still current because, you know, currently, uh, you know, I remember interviewing a Georgian filmmaker just a few months ago about how she's afraid her movie, you know, is going to be suppressed uh, in some way. Uh, so, uh, and it's also, you know, this is an example, I think, of Ken Classics uh, often programs a movie that is in dialogue in some way with contemporary cinema and sometimes with a movie that's actually in the selection. You know, any anyone who's been seeing movies for the past year or two uh, has been clued into the Georgian, I don't know what you'd call it. It's, it's a little wave. It's a boomlet, um, including this film that was at Berlin, the long title, I'm not going to try to recall or beginning um and you know plenty of plenty of other interesting ones including this documentary uh who's the director i was just talking about um, it's all about the transportation of trees that this crazy billionaire in georgia is doing just uprooting and transferring a whole forest of trees for his semi-private arboretum uh, which is technically public available publicly available but anyway it sounds like a detail that would be in uh repentance um, and then there are, there are all these other things like these kind of hell, visions of hell or, or and uh, evil. It's 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 a little bit of everything in here, um, and it has a frame that allows it to be 
excused in case anyone took the director to account. So that's kind of obligatory CYA <laughs> uh, gesture. But yeah, I, so I, you know, I, I want to say it's like riveting from start to end, but it's 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 not your average like Soviet era like allegory or protest kind of movie. I like that. Mm, sounds great. I can't wait to watch it. I'm really, yeah, I really do regret not making time to watch that. I really some something in me tells me that they should program these things twice. Mm. You know, like they they only have one. And it's kind of the same with every film festival, like New York Film Festival. I was looking at, I was looking at the schedule from like a couple of years ago, and like they only showed like, you know, the retrospective films, like A Touch of Zen, like once. And I'm like, I really like. What if you can't make that, and you really want to watch that movie? You have to like, yeah. Whereas like a bunch of these other mediocre bullshit movies, like A Hero or uh, or um, the the what's it called the uh, the story of my wife get like five screenings or whatever. And it's like, there's, there's something, <laughs> there's something, there's the math doesn't add up here. <laughs> were they still, where were they showing these movies? Were they still showing them in the, what's it called? The Soissantien room? No, no, no. I mean, well? none of them showed in the Soissantien. They all showed in the Salbenwell, which is mm-hmm. like on the fifth floor of the main, like palace where they show all the, all the major movies. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah it was yeah it was nice i liked it yeah that's like at the right right at the top of the palais so it's i'm I'm always like pretty exhausted not from walking it but like it's, it, if i've made been able to make time for the can classic it's usually probably toward the end of the festival so you get up there and mm. feel like i'm on the top of a mountain but then you're able to sit down and enjoy something like one of these films that's also where i, I saw a uh, a rescreening of the assassin which is one of my fondest uh memories did you watch anything a second time while you were there yes i did what did i watch i watched um well i paid to watch annette again like they at the multiplex cinema because it was already out in france like the friday that it um premiered um so i wanted to watch it again because i'm writing a review of it for freeze and it was like just even it's even more better the second time i also um the last day of the festival i rewatched drive my car for a second time Mm solidify and again the same thing it was just like they get so much deeper like upon retrospective reviewing but um i'm not that part of that kale school of people who's like yep you can only see it once and then you're, you're good forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know how people do that especially especially during a fucking festival it's like you know you're you're asked to watch so many of these movies like one after the other one after the other and like mm-hmm. you forget a lot of them and like unless you're taking like really copious notes and you're revisiting them and you're like oh yeah i remember i like that and it's just i don't know it's um yeah yeah so those two i rewatched and i there was so many others obviously i wish i would i could have rewatched um well actually there were two that on the beach that i Rewatched one was Scarecrow, the Jerry Schatzberg movie that won oh. um, the Palm Door in 1973. That was a great screening, like to and Jerry introduced it. Oh, he was there. Yeah, yeah, he was there. He introduced it, and you know, it was it was a nice it was a nice time had by it all. Such a depressing movie, honestly, though, for a beach. Like, I just, I but I love that. I love that part of it. It was like, you know, we're gonna give you a lot of '70s miserabilism for the next two hours. <laughs> like, and you're just gonna have to, you're just gonna have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, and then I watched Lovers Rock also on the, on the beach. I had seen it like a couple weeks when Lincoln Center was showing it um, as part of like New York Film Festival of last year, Re- Redux. Mm. But I um, rewatched it again on the beach, and it was just. Yeah, just it's a gorgeous movie. Oh wow, that 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 seems like a really good setting for it because yeah, just I mean, for one thing, just the feeling, the kind of fellow feeling of, of those screenings. Are you? Um, do you have any like updates about the Schatzberg project? Or we can skip that if you want. Uh, nothing. There's not major updates of it right now. We're just, yeah. we're just kind of like put that on the back burner as I'm returning back to school. And I mean, it's it's gonna be my dissertation project, so it's just kind of here and there like just right. yeah there's so. t- time yet there's time yet exactly yeah he's, he's still in good shape at 94 years old which is just kind of amazing it's wonderful yeah i mean that's true that's uh flying over for that i know some people are you know in their 90s are kind of avoiding um avoiding any kind of travel it's great yeah and um, still and he's still on the the prowl there's um 
a film festival in Spain, who I'm forgetting the name of right now, but um, they're doing like a huge retrospective of all his movies in like September. Yeah, I think he's going to fly out for that. And then there's a screening of the Panic and Needle Park that's going to happen also in September that I'll be doing the Q&A for at Fotografaskia. Oh, great. In Manhattan, in like the, the big building where the, the photography museum is. Great. All right. Well, that's, I think that probably brings us to, to the end of our Can Classics episode. Uh, there are plenty, I just also want to say there's many more movies, um, many more movies that were in the selection, um, including, I mean, I guess we kind of, I'm glad we, we picked a mix of, you know, movies that people might know and also might be new to them. But of course, you know, they had also premieres of, of you know, for example, uh, Mulholland Drive restoration, you know, um. And that sort of thing as F for Fake um, and just movies like Slavsky, Shinoda, uh, Raul Peck, and Marta Macharos. Just want to mention she's a really interesting filmmaker. They had a diary for my children. Mm. And The Killing Floor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which people can watch on Criterion Channel. And Cassandra Cat, which I'm just so bummed and pissed off that I <laughs> missed that one. My God. And even. I had to look closely and it was just like, oh, God. Oh, my God. I yeah. I interviewed that filmmaker once. Um, oh, old tech Disney. Yeah. It was a long time ago and he was the sweetest man. Uh, and just, he really likes cats. It's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that movie is, I don't know. I think a, a still from that movie was my my profile for, for a while in the very mm. early days of Facebook because it's yeah it's just a fun playful film Cassandra Cat yeah, yeah one last thing uh, I always like to direct people to where you're you're writing next you mentioned I know you have the wrap up uh, coming up in the um, Gagosian Quarterly right is there anything else coming up yeah there's a I'm writing a review for Annette for Freeze and then yeah I'm just freelancing around. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, and right. sure we'll uh, we'll be seeing more movies to talk about. But Carlos, again, thank you as always for for chatting about what you've seen. Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast, Nick. You've been listening to the last thing I saw with your host Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>